0: You can tell a lot about a person uh, based upon their funeral. Uh, Next week will mark 10 years since my father-in-law passed away. And as I was thinking about him this week, I was thinking about uh, the funeral or actually funerals that we had for him the week after he died. Uh, he grew up Roman Catholic, uh, but over the course of his life, and over the, through the influence of my mother-in-law and my wife and uh, and my brother-in-law, uh, he eventually b- made his way over towards Protestantism, but not entirely. And so, at the end of his life, uh, it was it seemed fitting that uh, that we would do two services: uh, one Protestant service that I led, and then one the very next day that was. Uh, uh, Roman Catholic circles, And while it was somewhat strange in some ways, it was fitting because it told the story about who he was, what he valued, and what was important to him. And if you've ever been to, if you've been to a funeral recently, you know that through eulogies and speeches and the hymns that are chosen and the scriptures that are chosen, it communicates loudly about a per, the person that uh, the funeral is commemorating. But funerals are also very difficult. They're difficult because they provide a sense of finality to the life of the, of the person. Uh, there's a strange period between when a person dies and the funeral where it just doesn't seem real, but then the funeral and the burial make everything seem painfully real. Well, it was no less true for Jesus. Jesus. We who know the end of the story read this account of his burial and think, well, I know but I know what's going to happen in 3 days. But everybody else who was there didn't. This provided the what seemed to be the end of his life. And John throughout his gospel has been telling the story of Jesus. And in the next chapter of this gospel, he will tell us why he has chosen the things that he has chosen to put in his, in this book. And he says that he's chosen them so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. And if that's your goal, if that's John's goal as he's writing, if there's any part of his life that you might want to omit, it would be his burial. Because it was, like I already said, his burial that seemed to mark the definitive end of his life, the end of all that he was about, But John includes it and the rest of the gospel writers include it because he wants us to see that even in this moment, when his life appears by all intents and purposes to be over, that his ministry appears to be over, that even in this moment, God is communicating that this is his son and that we can trust him, that we can give our lives to him and that we can still find life in him even in a moment that is shot through with death. It is difficult to continue to trust in Jesus. It's difficult to continue to walk through this life as we face trials and temptations and difficulties to continue our trust and and belief that Jesus is God's son and that we are God's sons and daughters because we are connected to Jesus. And so this morning, I want you to see three things that Jesus' burial communicates about who he is so that you can continue to trust him when life is a challenge to you. First, I want you to see that Jesus has the power to change fearful people. Secondly, that Jesus is loved by the Father. And, and finally, that Jesus has life even in death. First, let's look at the, the, the fact that Jesus has the power to change fearful people. Two men enter the scene in, at this point in, in Jesus' gospel. Uh, sorry, in John's gospel. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea is a man that we uh, don't know anything about except for these accounts of Jesus' burial. Uh, John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but did you notice that he adds another detail about his life, and that is that he was a disciple secretly because he feared the Jews. This is a reference back to John chapter 12, where there was a larger group of these people who feared being kicked out of the synagogue, be- uh, for, and so they didn't publicly identify themselves with Jesus we know that joseph was a religious leader he was part of the sanhedrin part of the council and he had lots to lose he was wealthy he had status he had power and if he identified himself with jesus he put, he risked putting all of that at risk and losing all of it and so he feared and the other man that comes on the scene is nicodemus we've met nicodemus before back in john chapter 3 and another part in his gospel he reappears and you remember that, uh, that Nicodemus, John reminds us, came to Jesus by night. And that was significant because he also, like Joseph, was afraid of what people would think if he was identified with Jesus. And so as John describes these two men, he points out and makes sure that we recognize that these are two fearful people, fearful men. But something happened to them after the death of Jesus. Something changed. A switch flipped in their hearts. And they became courageous. Joseph risks his reputation and he asks Pilate for permission to take down the body of Jesus. That was not something that Joseph could have done in secret. He himself would have had to go to Pilate because he was the only one with the access and who Pilate would listen to. And so this was something he had to do very publicly, risking his reputation. Uh, Nicodemus, we're told, bring 75 pounds of spices. That's not something he had in the fridge at home. He would have had to go out to the market, send his servants and his his household staff to go buy this and, and transport it out to Golgotha, out in full view of the city. And so picture not just Joseph and Nicodemus by themselves going out to take the body of Jesus down and to bury him, but but really a whole team of people, two Uh, Two staffs going out to take Jesus down and to prepare for his burial. This was public and in the view of everybody. They put it all at risk for the sake of Jesus. And so we see that even as Jesus is dead, even though his disciples had run away from him, he is now still at work drawing his people and his disciples back to him. Sometimes for us, it's hard to believe that people can actually change like these two men changed. We see our lives as static and stuck and frozen and fixed. We see ourselves as this is just the way that I am, that our spouses, that's the way they are, and our, perhaps our kids the same way. And we can grow cynical and just become busy with life and just numb ourselves with activity, thinking, well, this is just the way it is. I'll ride it out until the Lord takes me home. But we need to remember that Jesus has the power to change even the deepest fearful people. Men like this who had a lot to lose and had a lot to fear, but who nevertheless Jesus changed into courageous men who could publicly identify themselves with him, putting it all at risk. And so are there people in your life whom you desire to see change? A family member who does not believe in Jesus who you want to believe desperately, a child you want to see mature, a spouse who needs encouragement or help. Let me ask you a question. How, how often do you talk, how many words do you spend talking to that person about the change that they need? And how many words do you spend talking to Jesus about the change that they need? Oftentimes we spend more time talking and convincing and persuading uh, uh, people and talk more more time talking to them than actually talking to the person who has the power to get inside their hearts and change them. And so this ought to be an encouragement to us to, yes, talk to people. Of course, God uses us in the lives of other people, but we need to talk to the one who has the power to change their hearts. To go before Him and pray and ask God to change the to to, to change the hearts of the people we love in a real and lasting way. But it's not only about the people out in your life that need to change. Where do you need to change? Where are are the fears in your life that God needs to come into your heart and turn around and make you a courageous person? Are you do you do you uh, identify with these guys who find uh, it easier to follow Jesus from a distance? careful not to get too close, afraid of what you might lose if you give up too much control to Jesus. Ask Jesus to change you. Ask him to help you to overcome your fears by faith in him. Because Jesus has the power to change fearful people. But how can we gain confidence to ask God so boldly for Him? To change us or to change the world or to change the people around us. The the only way that we can do that is if we understand, if we have the confidence that only knowing that you are a son or a daughter of God can give. Which is the second thing that Jesus uh, communicates to us in his burial. That Jesus is loved by his Father. Jesus is loved by his Father. As we read the account of the crucifixion, it would be easy to think, where was the Father through all of that? Where was the Father through all of that? Is, is he really the Son of God? We just read how Satan tempted Jesus again and again. If you're really the Son of God, then you would do this. And we might read that in the crucifixion. If you were really the Son of God, then you would stop all of that. But the Father was not absent. And we see him here in the burial of his Son, I want you to notice a few things that he does. First, he moves Pilate to grant Joseph the body of Jesus. That was not a foregone conclusion. Typically, Pilate would have left the bodies up on the cross until the birds finished them off several days later as a reminder of what happens when you disobey the Roman government. But he granted Joseph the body. As the Sabbath approaches, at the end of the day here on Friday, the last Sabbath that would ever occur, God the Father puts his son down to rest for that last day of rest before the day would change to Sunday. Nicodemus, again, brings spices, a lot of spices, and those were designed to be a a sign of honor for the body of Jesus. They weren't there to preserve the body, but they were there to disguise the decay that would inevitably happen. And so it was a sign of respect and honor for the body of Jesus. And did you notice that the tomb in which Jesus was placed, it says, was close at hand? Right down the hill from Golgotha, on, underneath the city wall, they've uncovered a number of tombs that were, that were right there dug into a quarry. And so it just so happens that the guy that goes to take Jesus down off the cross is the guy that owns the tomb right there by the, uh, by the cross that he can take and put Jesus then down for rest there. The father cares for his son, even in his burial. So I thought about that this week. I was reminded of uh, when, when our kids were really young, and we had to put them down every night. And, as, and every young parent, know, every parent of young kid, knows that, that that's a precious time. That that's a time when you have to make sure that all the details are right. Uh, you got to make sure the lights are right. You got to make the, get the music right. My job was to swaddle the kids, and so I'd crank that thing really tight and make sure those arms were not going to come out. I want to say that was out of love for my kids, but it was probably somewhat self, uh, selfish in making sure that they didn't wake up during the middle of the night. But parents know that. They take care of the details because they know that their children need to rest. And the father does that for his son. J.I. Packer says this. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child And having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. How much do you make of the fatherhood of God? When you look back over your life and review the things that have happened to you over the course of your life, do you see the Father's hand at work moving and arranging the pieces to provide for you and to provide for the details of your life? Or maybe you look back and you just see chaos and and the, the uh, more evidence that the world is out of control and that it's up to you to control things. Or when you think about your future, do you, do you face it with the confidence knowing that God, God is your father? And that as every other good father does, he knows what you need and he knows how to arrange the details of your life to care for you. That he controls every circumstance in your life. That he is not a distant God, but that just as he loved his son and cared for the details of his burial, so will he care for the details of your life. Christians, if you trust in Jesus, then God is your father. And you are his dependent child. And so, draw near to Jesus. Even in those moments, like this burial, when they seem to be shot through with death, there are even moments that are communicating to you that God is your father. He loves you, and he is caring for you. Not even the burial of his own son could separate him from the love of his own son. And it will not be for you either. So Jesus has the power to change fearful people. We have the confidence to approach God, to ask him those things, because we are his children. We are beloved by God, just as God loved his only begotten son. But there's one more thing that Jesus communicates through this last moment of his earthly life, and that is that even in his death, even in the what seems to be the punctuation mark at the end of his life, he is still communicating and teeming with life that is to come at the resurrection. I want you to notice Jesus' tomb. We're told by other gospel writers that Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. And we know that uh, in part because his tomb was the tomb of a wealthy man. Uh, tombs uh, of that day, typically the doors of the tombs had uh, a door, uh, a big stone that stuck in the door like a cork. So it was the same size as the door. Uh, But that was difficult to move. You had to kind of drag it out and and flop it to the side. And so if you had means, you uh, made a, a circular door, a round door that you could roll back and forth with greater ease over the door because these were tombs that you would go in and out of. And so this is a tomb with the highest trim package. That, uh, that you can get on a tomb. He's a wealthy man, and it's brand new. It's the it's the it, no one has been laid in it before. And that, while that seemed, might seem to be a random detail, listen to uh, Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, it's a familiar passage from Isaiah's prophecy where he promises that a servant of the Lord is coming and he will be crushed by the Father. He'll bear the iniquities of his people, but he will do that in order to bring them life, to bring them into the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah prophesies. And he says this about that servant. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus died a rejected man, but he was buried a victorious king. And the new tomb foreshadows the new creation that he is bringing into the world. Friends, Jesus, even in his burial, is crying out that there is life in his name. And John is including this here so that you will believe in him and have life in his name. But you need to ask the question, where are you looking for life? Maybe ask yourself, what what would fully and finally complete you? you? What could you not live without? What would produce instant happiness in your life if you had it? Success, fame, money, love, pleasure, comfort. What is it that would bring your life completion? Whatever that is, God wants you to see that you can't find life in those things. You can't find eternal life in those things. You need to look to Jesus, the one who died and was buried and raised again, to find life in His name. I read a story this week that uh, pulled these strands together. It's a Story written by Paul Miller. Um, in his book, The Praying Life, he uh, speaks. He writes about his daughter Kim, uh, while. His uh, his wife Jill was pregnant with Kim. She would pray over her pregnancy, Psalm one twenty one, very familiar psalm, to keep her from harm. That was her prayer, keep her from harm, just like you promised in Psalm one twenty one. But when but when Kim was born, everything went wrong. She was born blue. Her all of her scores were low across the board. As a young child, there was clearly something wrong. She uh, had no diagnosis, but she, she could not focus her eyes. Her muscle development was not right. She had pneumonia. She had trouble breathing. And it took them 20 years to figure out exactly what was going on with her. And what was so challenging is that it seemed as though belief in God made it more difficult to have a daughter with, those, with that condition because they had prayed for her, they had asked God to keep them from harm, and yet it, it seemed as if God was harming their life through what he had brought into it because she completely changed their life, depleted their finances as they cared for her, forced moves, forced career changes, all of that, it, 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 it seemed to deplete and to humble them. 20 years later he was writing a bible study on Psalm 121 and he remembered his wife's prayer. He said this. He said, "Jill, God did it. He kept us from harm. He did Psalm 121. We had thought the harm was a daughter with disabilities. But this was nothing compared to the danger of two proud and willful parents. Because Kim was mute, Jill and I learned to listen. Her helplessness taught us to become helpless, too. He thought he was praying against the harm of a daughter with disabilities, but God his Father knew better. He knew how to change a fearful man, a fearful woman, into courageous people. He knew that because he loved the Son, because he loved him in his Son, that he could turn them into helpless children who would depend upon him for everything that they needed. And he knew that in sending Kim into their life, that he would lead them into that which is truly life, to give up on the comfortable life that they wanted, That they might draw near to God and find help in their time of need. And friends, he wants the same for you. He wants to affect that change in your life. He wants to remind you through this burial that he loves you. And he wants you to have life in his name. So draw near to Jesus. Find your life in Jesus. And come and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... The fact that even in dark moments, dark moments like this, the burial of, your, of the body of your own son, that you communicate the blessings of the gospel. You communicate your love for sinners. You communicate the heart of a father who loves and cares for his children and who, who will provide the details of our life and everything that we need. You communicate to us your desire for us to have genuine life. And so we pray that as, that you would forgive us for the ways that we have sought life and everything else and that you would draw our hearts to Jesus and that we would find our life in him. And we ask all this in his name. Amen.